Ephesians 3 is just 21 verses. So what we're going to do is we're going to read 7, 7, and 7, and 3 sevens are 21. So, but first we're going to start with real basic stuff. Some of this stuff I, I guess you guys know because you come to church, right? But Ephesians was written by Paul the Apostle. He wrote it from a jail cell in Rome. And uh, let me say this. Sometimes our place of, of limitation, our, our place of greatest limitation, is, our, uh, is really the place of our greatest revelation. He ends this book in chapter 6 with this concept of the armor of the Lord. He had a revelation of the armor of the Lord as he was looking at someone who was commanded to hold him in a jail cell. So sometimes, right, the, our, our, the place that we feel limited in is really the place that God wants to speak to us in. And sometimes we want to move beyond where we are, but God has us right where we are because there's lessons that we need to grab right where we are. Because if we're going to move forward, we have to first understand what it is he's wanting to say to us in that time. Does this make sense? So anyway, he was in a, uh, a jail cell in Rome. Um, this took place between 60 and 61 AD. This is the time frame. And he's writing to the Ephesians who lived in Ephesus, which is modern-day Turkey. To be specific, it's western Turkey. So uh, that's just practical stuff that might maybe you want to know, maybe not, but... Um, nevertheless, that's, that's what, what it is. So, let's go to Ephesians 3, and uh, let's, let's get into this a little bit. And um, I love how Ephesians 3 ends, because have you ever been somewhere, like you, you're at a church meeting, or you're somewhere, just in general, and you're kind of thinking in your head, you don't want to say it out loud, you're kind of like, what's in this for me? Like, come on. You've went to a conference or you went somewhere and you're like, yeah, I'm hearing stuff, but I'm not, I'm not hearing something directly for me, right? Are you guys with me? Paul ends it with this, uh, just, he, he drives it totally home and he, he finishes what he's saying by telling them what is directly for them. All right? So let's, we're going to go to the first seven verses now. For this, uh, for this cause, I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to you, Lord, or to, which is given to me, to you, or for you, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. For in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Wherefore, I am made a minister according to the gift of the grace given unto me by the effectual working of his power." We understand in verse 1 that he says this, that I am a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Where was he? He was in jail. Where was he? He was in Rome. He did not define himself by his circumstances. 
he defined himself by his relationship with Jesus. Paul the Apostle, if you look at the person in the Bible who develops the concept of hope, no one uh, speaks more about hope than Paul the Apostle, and no one spent more time in jail than Paul the Apostle. So our circumstances do not have to define us. That's the purpose of biblical faith. Biblical faith is we are then defined by who what we are in relationship to, not what circumstances we find ourselves in. And it's, it's, it's important to understand that these are real circumstances. He's really in a jail cell. He's really cold. He's really been persecuted. This is not he's having a bad hair day. He got stuck in traffic in New Jersey. This is, this is like really persecuted, really in prison, really basically forsaken by every church except the Philippians, financially, right? I mean, he had troubles, yet he did not define himself according to his troubles. Watch this. Verse 2, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given, me, uh, given to me to you. In other words, the grace of God that God gave to Paul was for people. God empowers us with the intention of us caring for and leading others. When you see the grace of God in scripture, you see that it is towards someone. Like if it is toward me, it's for you. Or if it's toward you, but it's for me. In other words, God wants to do something through us, so he entrusts us with something so that we have something to give. Are you following me? So the grace of God that God gave to Paul was actually for the Ephesians. Grace is to help us to stand. Grace is not mercy. Mercy is like you made a mistake. Grace is God empowering you to do what you could not do without him. Grace is the empowering presence and favor of God upon your life for someone else. Right? Are you following me? Okay, so God's grace, again, Paul recognized God's grace that was, was, was for him, but it was toward them. So you're going to see later on in the same chapter that the grace of God is then empowering Paul to do something again. Every time you see the word grace, if you look carefully, often, uh, almost all the time, the grace of God is an empowering in action, or it's an empowering, uh, it's, it's um, for example, in Daniel 10, and Daniel found favor in the sight of the Lord, and then the Lord gave him favor with the people, and he was allowed to change his diet, and the favor that God gave him automatically gave him a position, remember? And he automatically gave his friends a job, right? So when you see the favor and when you see the grace of God through Scripture, it's always for something, it's always active. It's not just, oh, I have grace in my account for no reason, but it's that God is empowering us to do something, and it's usually for someone. Okay? Uh, verse, let's go to three. How that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery as I've wrote aforetime or before, whereby you, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Now, sometimes we read things in the Bible and we don't really actually think about what exactly is being said. Imagine if someone stood up here, right? I mean, I'm not going to do this, but imagine someone stood up here and said, yeah, I want you to read my book so that you understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. That sounds arrogant, doesn't it? But he's absolutely humble. In other words... There was something that God received, that he received from God that he wanted them to know that he knew. 
from God, directly from God. Now, if, if someone would talk like that today, we would, we would give them the New Jersey look. I would be the first person to say, but this is right here in the scripture. And um, we're going we're gonna to get deeper into this, but he explains to them, uh, Paul makes his intentions clear. He wants the Ephesians to read his letter so that they can understand his revelation of the mystery of Christ that has been revealed to him directly by Jesus. In other words, he is telling them to read something with a desired outcome in mind. Right? Are you guys, have you guys ever read 1 John where he says many times, I write to you, young men, I write to you, fathers, I write to you. And every time he says, I write to you, he tells them why. We have ideas in our mind about love and about certain concepts. That whole epistle is about love, yet no one is more uh, intentional in their writing about why they're writing. Nothing is more intentional than love. Right? So I, I want that concept to, to fall into this because he does this here. He's saying, I want you to read this so that you understand. And the word understand is to actually to exercise your mind, to think, to perceive, right? So it's, um, and it doesn't just mean that, it also means to heed, which means to obey. So Paul has been given revelation from God concerning the mystery of Christ. Paul says to the Ephesians, I want you to read this so that you would understand, Right? But in the word understanding, it also means heed, which is actually another word for obey. So this revelation that Paul has received has the power to produce obedience in the life of other believers if they would read it and follow his instructions. Right? Um, let's go to verse 5. 5, it says, Which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Now, this is an interesting verse. Here Paul is speaking about a revelation that was happening in his time that was hidden in other generations. What Paul is writing to them about is what God was currently doing in relationship to the past, right? Paul wasn't living in the past. Paul was relating what was happening in the present to what was spoken in the past. Are you following me? Because the prophets, the whole Old Testament is testifying of Jesus. That's what, that's what it's all about. The whole Old Testament is testifying about Jesus. And the whole New Testament is the revelation of Jesus. So in the Old Testament, we have the preservation of a seed. And in the New Testament, we have the revelation of a son. If you could sum up the whole Old Testament and the whole New Testament, it's the preservation of a seed. The enemy is after the seed, to kill the seed, to crush the seed, to destroy the people, genocide, war, captivity, bondage, sin, problems, all that. But it's to destroy the seed because there would be a seed that would come forth that would crush his head, right? And so the Old Testament, again, is, is the preservation of a seed and the New Testament is the revelation of a son. And so here, this is important to realize this, that Paul is saying, this has been revealed to me. It's, it's almost like this, this word of like um, you take the cover off something, but you don't know what's actually in there. So, so basically, throughout human history, until Paul starts to write this, the lid has been on this mystery called the revelation of basically who Christ is, which we're going to get into that more. 
But what happened is God has chosen to reveal it to what? His holy apostles and prophets, right? So God chose a certain group of men and he took the cover off of what he would be doing in redemptive history to these men. Are you following me? But it calls them holy men, which is important to understand because they were not holy in and of themselves. And this is, this is what I, I, I would like to say to you. Paul the Apostle did not receive a revelation of Jesus Christ because he was holy. Paul the Apostle was evil and he was killing uh, innocent people. He was trafficking humans and he, people were dying at his word. He watched Stephen be martyred in front of him, forgive the crowd of people who were killing him, and he saw Stephen see Jesus standing at the right hand of God with heaven open. He still didn't repent. He still didn't change the way he thought about Jesus or God. What does God do? God is the ultimate confronter. God shows up, knocks him off his horse, shuts down his retina, his retinas for three days. The first lesson that Paul learns is that he needs other people. So the people who are following him and they were on his, they were his entourage. Are you following me? His entourage are actually the ones who were leading him by the hand into the city. The people that he came to destroy in that city were letting him down the city wall in a handbasket and his very life was in their hands. What does he learn? He learns that he needs people and he learns that this is of the grace of God. Right? So, translating all of that, remember John 15, Jesus said to his disciples, I no longer call you what? Servants. Because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. But now I call you friends. What does that show us? It shows us that revelation is what transforms us. What made them holy men is the revelation they received, not the life that they lived prior to that revelation. That's why this is of grace. Not of works, lest any man should boast. And so this is the generosity of God that God would reveal all of who Jesus is to this guy who was trying to destroy everything Jesus was doing. And in Paul the Apostle, we see the intentions of God because he embodies God's intentions for Gentile nations. Verse 6. That the Gentiles, when you see the word Gentiles, that's a, it's, a, it's, like, it's a Bible word, but it means heathen, <laughs> the heathen, it means the old school word like sinners. <laughs> but the best way to really think of it is think of, forget about the word Gentiles and think of the word nations. Nations. Different ethnos. The Greek word is the word ethnos. You know where you see that word? In Starbucks. The water they have is called what? Ethnos. Okay? It means peoples, nations. So forget about Gentiles and now think nations because this is what God is after. What is, what is Jesus' inheritance according to Psalms 2 verse 8? The nations, right, are his inheritance. Are you following me? So let's go to 6 again and let's read this again. That the Gentiles or that the nations should be fellow heirs and of the same body or community and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. 
Paul explains the purpose of this revelation that he received. This is held in the context of the church reading his letter to understand it. Right? So Paul explains why he wants them to read the letter. You following me? Are you with me? And then after that, he explains the purpose of the revelation that he's received is that so Gentiles or so that the nations could be of the body and could be partakers of God's promise that he made through covenants. Are you following me? With me now? Through Jesus by the gospel. Okay, I'm going to say it again. The purpose of this revelation was the intentions of God when God gave Paul this revelation. This is what Paul is saying. This is not what I'm saying. God gave Paul this revelation for the purpose of the nations being a part of Christ's body, which is made possible through his giving of his body, which is made real through the preaching of the gospel. So the proclamation of the gospel opens the door for people to come into Christ and to be in Christ to partake of those promises to be part of his body or his community. So this revelation that God gave Paul was for the nations. For the Gentiles. The promise was made by Christ and is made possible through the gospel. The gospel brings people into Christ so that they can experience the promise. The word uh, partakers here, God wants us to be, uh, he wants the nations to be partakers. Partakers are, are not recipients. Uh, it's not like I'm a welfare recipient, I stand online, I get something for free. That's not what God wants. God wants people who are participants in what he's doing. So this revelation that God gave Paul had the power to make us participants in what God is doing for the purpose of the gospel bringing the nations into Christ so that they could partake of his promises. Promise, an announcement or a pledge, a divine assurance of good. We're going to find out later, I think uh, we may have already found out somewhere in the book of Ephesians that this promise is actually a person. It's the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to get into how, uh, toward the end of the chapter, how this, how the Father, what the Father's, like what is the Father doing in this? What is the Son's role in this? And what is the Holy Spirit's role in redemption? And as it relates to the gospel, salvation, and people coming into being partakers of God, being, being co-participants, being in the community of God, participating with, with the will and the purposes of God. Let's go to verse 7, because this one... <laughs> All right. 7. What did they do before PowerPoint? Okay. Wherefore, I was made a minister... According to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Are you guys having a problem back there? You are. That's what, it's okay. I got it on my iPad too. I'm not messing around here. All right. Paul was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace by God's energy and power. It took more of God's power to make Paul a minister than it does to hold the whole entire planet in motion. 
Pastor David taught us in Ephesians 1.19 that it took four of God's powers to raise Jesus from the dead, to sit Jesus at the right hand of God, and that power is now working in us, which means that there's more power at work within us than it actually takes to hold the whole entire planet in motion. Because Hebrew, that's why John said, greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. These, these guys didn't talk about what they were writing, but it was the same spirit revealing to them the truths that were in God's heart and mind forever. And they penned them down for us to receive and live by, right? And so it's, what, what we see here is that it takes two of God's powers to make Paul a minister of the gospel Yet again, think about this. God holds all things together by the word of his power. One power. It takes one power, perfect, to hold the planet in motion. Are you following me? It takes more of God's power to make us, watch this, Christ-like and others-focused than it does to hold the entire planet in motion. That says, prior to Jesus, we are selfish creatures. Right? It takes two of God's powers. It takes his energy, watch this, and his dunamis power to make this happen. But it doesn't just happen by God's energy and and by God's power. It also happens by his, his gift of grace. And the word gift, in Greek is the word gratuity, which means someone who gives gratuity is someone who is generous. Watch this. So it's the, bless you. So it is the generosity of God that gives us access to what we do not deserve by grace or by favor. And it's his power and it's his active energy working in us to make us others focus so that we would serve other people. The word minister here, that he was made a minister, it's a waiter. What does a waiter do? Is that a glamorous job? A waiter has to deal with people like me who want, you know, the food in a specific way. I don't want this on it. I don't want that on it. I don't want this on it. I want that. Right? What does a waiter do? Smiles. Right? Serves, right? Waits on other people, right? And so that's what God's power is doing to us. <laughs> it's helping us to serve with a smile, right? <laughs> All right. Now, here's another thing. Uh, Paul was made a minister, which is also the word deacon. And uh, for those who don't believe that women can be in positions of leadership, the problem is that this Greek word also includes deaconess. So it denotes a woman who is in a servant leadership position. Okay? It also is a word used for pastor or teacher. So it takes God's generosity, his power, his energy, and him deciding to give us what we do not deserve to make us focus on others so that we could serve other people. It seems a little intense to me. It seems that God is very patient with us, huh? He's very gracious. I think that one of the things we're going to have to learn is we're going to have to learn to be patient with people 
and to be generous and kind toward people like God has been with us. God never, ever, ever lessens, lowers, or reduces his moral standards, but yet he is absolutely patient. God never acknowledges sin as good, right, or, or, or just. He always says it's evil. He always calls a spade a spade. He always is totally just, totally morally upright, yet he is long-suffering and he is patient. And I think that we've got to, as a people, we've got to learn to be patient with ourselves and we've got to learn to be patient with other people. Patience and long-suffering will wear people down and they will eventually come into the kingdom of God. In fact, it's God's long-suffering that has the power to lead men to repentance. It's not only God's kindness, because we're always quick to quote, it's God's kindness who leads to repentance, which means, don't tell me about my sin, just be nice. That's what people are usually trying to say. However, it's also God's long-suffering in his patience. And let me explain the difference between patience and long-suffering. Long-suffering is when patience starts to hurt. All right, poor Sarah. Ready? All right. Unto me, who am less than the least of all the saints, is this grace given that I should preach, yes, among the nations, the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. Paul explains that the grace was given to him, what? For the purpose of what? Preaching. Thank you. (laughs) For the purpose of what? Feeling better about himself. No, no, no. Selling more books. Okay. Selling more CDs. Getting more people to come on mission trips with him. <laughs> no, no, no. None of those things, right? The purpose that the grace was given to him was for the preaching of the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. So here we see that grace is empowering him to what? Preach. Right before, what was grace doing? Grace was empowering him. Remember, we were grace is given to me, but it was to the Ephesians. So God, in the beginning, in chapter two, uh, verse two, had given grace to Paul for the Ephesians. Now, grace is given to Paul not only for the Ephesians but for the nations. Okay, unto me, who am less than the least of all the saints. Why does he say that I'm less than the least of all the saints when he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament? Yes, because he was the worst prior to Christ. Let me me explain to you. Preachers, um, writers, um, thinkers, they all think to themselves. And what that means is that Paul is the one, it wasn't... James, or it wasn't John the Beloved who wrote pressing, uh, pressing past those things that have you know happened. Who was it saying looking to the future, looking to Jesus, forgetting those things which were behind? Who the guy who murdered people, right? So he's talking to himself. We have to realize that a lot of times David, the most famous psalm that drug dealers know, evil people know. Drug dealers have it tattooed on their forearm and on their chest. Psalm 23 is a guy talking to himself. That's what it is. Read it real carefully. The Lord is my shepherd. Who are you talking to? Yourself. I will fear no evil. Who are you talking to? Yourself. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. Who are you talking to? Yourself. Right? And so some of this stuff, 
I'm sorry to say this, but some of this stuff in here, yes, it's all divine, it's all inspired, but it's sometimes people talking to themselves. Why is he saying, I am less than all the least of all the saints? Because that's how he felt based on what he did. Why does he develop the concept of grace more than anyone? Because he needed it more than anyone. <laughs> right? Peter's like, hey man, we left everything and followed you. Give us what's just, right? Come on. But this guy's talking about grace. What did he need? Grace. But what's interesting about the grace man, Paul here, is no one, Paul the Apostle said, I labor more abundantly than all of you, which doesn't sound like a humble statement, but it's a real statement. I labor more abundantly than the rest of the apostles. He said that. Why? He had the greatest revelation of the energy of God at work within him, and he also had the greatest revelation of grace, which is actually what empowers us to do the work of the Lord. So the revelations that he received were then translated into his real life. He was not just a hearer of the word, but he applied what he was revealed to him. And when we apply what is revealed to us, that is when demonstrations of power and that is when things begin to break loose for our lives, when we apply what we know. Grace empowered him to preach. The nations were his audience. His message, this is, this is the stunning, uh, beautiful message that, I, I love this verse. His message was the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. Now, if you read carefully in the New Testament, you will find that the New Testament uh, men preached things that were very, very simple. In other words, here's the, here's the issue with us. We read their epistles, like we're doing now, right? And we preach their epistles, right? Are you with me? That's not bad. I'm doing it. You following me? We're preaching their epistles, but they didn't preach their epistles. They wrote them you will find that what they preached, which I'm not talking about in here. I'm talking about out there. What they preached is very simple. They preached the kingdom of God, number one. They preached Jesus and him crucified, number two. They preached Jesus Christ, number three. And number four, they preached the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. If you search the word preach, you will see all of what I just listened to you, because the message that they were preaching and they were declaring boldly to the outside world was very simple. When Paul is writing these letters, these letters are to the church. These letters are not to people who are not in Christ. So what do I do? If I take these letters and I apply these letters to sinners, what am I doing? I'm putting a standard on their life that they don't even believe in. We're the ones that need to put this standard to our life so that they can see Jesus in us and see what they can, they can actually do with their life should they choose to believe. Now, the unsearchable riches of Christ. The word unsearchable there means untraceable or uh, past finding out. And I hate to say this, and uh, you know, I don't know. I, prosperity guys love this, but the, the word riches... It, at first, it means value, but it also means wealth, possessions, and money. What does Haggai say? The silver and the gold is whose? The devil's? If you believe money or wealth belongs to the devil, you will never approach money correctly. And you will always have a poverty mindset if you believe that money belongs to the devil. The devil doesn't own jack. 
Money doesn't belong to the devil. Why is he a thief? Because he doesn't have anything. Right? So, so now the message that Paul is saying that God revealed to him to declare to the nations is that Jesus has wealth, has possessions, and has value that is past finding out. Verse 9, to make all men see what is the fellowship of this mystery which has been, which from the beginning of the world has been hidden in God who created all things by Jesus Christ. Paul's goal, this is, I would say, a pretty ambitious goal. This is my commentary. He wants all men to see a mystery that's been hidden before time existed. He's not saying, listen, man, we got a church of 200. We need 500 people. We need, we need more, you know, we need some screens. We, we need to get out of this building, which those are awesome goals. I'm, I'm all for that. But this guy has like a really ambitious goal of making everyone see which has been, that which is hidden and, and was kept silent since the world began. You've got to have a revelation of the worthiness of Jesus to have an ambition that great and that large with Jesus' name attached to it and be willing to pay with your own body. If Jesus and Paul took off their shirts and stood back to back, you wouldn't know who Jesus was and you wouldn't know who Paul was because his back was ripped apart five times, 39 lashes by the Jews to keep the testimony of the Lord in the synagogue. Because he believed that this, he believed in who Jesus was. Now, Jesus created all things, therefore, all men should see the mystery of who he is and what he has done as it relates to creation and redemption. You, we have to remember that as God is, is bringing forth creation, he's bringing it forth with redemption in mind. Sin did not catch God by surprise. What does he make on the third day? Trees. Three days Jesus would hang on a tree and rise from the dead. Everything God does. Sixth day he created man. The seed that dies and then the seed that rises. Everything God did, everything God has ever done in in, in the whole creation of the world is with redemption in mind. According to Paul, the greatness of who Jesus is and what he has done should determine the vastness of his audience who Paul desires to make his inheritance by the preaching of the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. Verse 10. To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. What does this mean? Does this mean Paul is telling Christians to submit to demons? Titus 3, watch this. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work. Is Paul asking us to feed demons lunch? Is he asking us to um, submit to demonic authorities and powers? No. 
we, we've been taught something different about principalities, something that is not actually biblical. Watch this. The same word for principalities here in Titus 3 verse 1 is the same uh, word in Ephesians 3 verse 10. Paul is not teaching the church to be subject to demons. He is saying for people to be subject to people in places of authority unless it undermines your faith in Jesus. Right? So I owe Caesar what is due Caesar. I don't, I don't owe Caesar worship. Caesar is not, I don't owe Caesar my conscience. Right? So I obey powers and principalities, which is not demons. It's people in places of authority. Unless, if this is, if this is, if I'm wrong, then Paul is saying bend your knees to demons and give them lunch because do every good work. Which he's not saying. What the point here is that what, what is God wanting to do? God is saying, listen, my church that declares this message will demonstrate my multifaceted and diverse wisdom to those who are in positions of authority and influence. And yes, demons have to see that, but it's not primarily for them. It's primarily for the people they influence. Because God is saying, I'm going to bring a greater influence through the church by the preaching of the gospel, specifically the message of the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ and and people in places of authority will see God's multifaceted or God's diverse wisdom through his people. Are you, are you, are you guys with me on that? I know that that principalities one might have been a, um, maybe something that we haven't, we haven't, thought about or we've maybe thought differently about if you want to study it you don't have to take what i'm saying for face value you can study it but let me give you another example that'll help you see yeah in daniel chapter 10 right daniel is fasting and praying because he's reminded of a prophetic word about the the liberation of god's people from babylon right 70 years they'll be oppressed and then they'll be free you follow me so he begins to weep fast pray do all that thing and he does that And an angel comes forth to him and says, I've been wrestling in in 21 days, right? But your answer has come. Now, why was there the contention in the second realm? The second realm is where the angels and demons are. You have the third heaven where the throne of God is. There's no demons there. You have the second realm, which is uh, where demons and angels do battle. And then you have the the first heavens, right, where you have where we are. We, we are on earth and then we have the stars, right? The scripture says the heavens, plural, declare the glory of God. That means all three heavens have to testify of God's glory. Third heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The heavens declare the glory of God. Second realm, Jesus walks in, demons are going crazy. Ah, ah, this is Jesus of Nazareth. The heavens declare the glory of God. The wise men, a star leads them to where Jesus is. The heavens declare the glory of God. You following me? So, right, what we have to see here is that there was a contention in the second realm with Daniel, but why? Why was there a fight? 
because Babylon did not want Israel to go free because Israel was Babylon's free slave labor. So what does that tell you? It tells us that the demonic in the second realm is looking for agreement on earth. So what happens is what Paul is saying is when the revelation comes forth to the powers that be, which are people, and those people begin to change their mind, demons are displaced, powers and principalities are displaced, and then the, the, the powers that be, which are people, recognize the wisdom of God through his people. Right? Let me give you an Old Testament example. Daniel doesn't compromise. Right? What happens? Laws are changed. That's, a, that's, a, that's kind of a picture of what this is saying. I, I hope I did it okay. I'm trying to. I don't know if I have full words fully, but that's, that's what I'm presenting. And you can study it in the Word. You don't have to take my, uh, my, my thoughts. A, a verse... Um, 11, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in our Lord Jesus Christ. All of God's eternal purposes are in Christ Jesus. Nothing outside of Jesus has eternal value or meaning. God defines all of reality by his son. Verse 12, Jesus, this is where it gets good. Let's read this. This, You know how like we're like, okay, what's in it for us? Verse 12. Watch this. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. Whose faith? Jesus' faith. Now, I come from a word of faith kind of background. Three offerings at church background. Okay? And I never ever once heard someone tell me about the faith of Jesus. I've had people tell me about what you can get with your faith, what you can do with your faith, how you can manipulate your faith, how you can talk to your faith. But the faith of Jesus is the very foundation in which we, we get faith. God has faith Right? Jesus has faith. What does he do? He puts grace towards us so that we can put faith in him. So that even our faith does not, it's not, it, it is not a result of us. Because then it would be a work. It's him, so it's of grace. Are you, are you guys with me on that one? So I don't, I, don't, I don't sit here, I'm not a faith factory. I don't sit here and just produce faith. Or else, if I did, I would sell it online. I'd sell it on the app store and I would be really rich and I wouldn't, I'd be living in the Dominican Republic on the beach somewhere. So that, that's the story here that Jesus' faith is doing something for you. <laughs> Jesus' faith is doing something for me. Jesus' faith is doing something for us. The question is not really what do others think of us. The question is not even really what do we think of ourselves. The first question is, what does Jesus think about us? What does Jesus believe about us? What access has Jesus given us? Who does Jesus say that we are? What does Jesus say that we can do? What does Jesus say that we must do? 
That's not popular. Everyone wants a Savior. Not everyone wants a Lord. The faith of Jesus gives us boldness, bluntness, frankness. This is the word. You can study this. This is not my opinion. This is not like, oh, this is my personality, so I want to share this. This agrees with my my unruly behavior, so I'm going to teach about it when the pastor's gone. No, no, no. This is what the scripture says. The faith of Jesus gives us boldness, which is bluntness, frankness, and confidence. Which means, New Jersey language, you call a spade a spade. Access. Jesus' faith gives me access, which is admission. Think about if you have a ticket to a concert or you have a ticket to a, a, a devil's game or you have a ticket somewhere, that ticket gets you in. It also gives us, Jesus' faith gives me confidence, but not confidence in my ability. Reliance upon him. Trust in him. So Jesus' faith gives us boldness to approach him and bluntness to represent him. I want to say something, and I'm just going to be very clear. When the apostles preached... And when the prophets of old spoke, they were willing to die and bleed for people. They loved people. They were radically merciful. When Stephen was being stoned, he said, forgive them. But he also called them wicked and hard-hearted. When the apostle Peter stood up and preached and he says, Jesus, whom you crucified, which is actually apostolic preaching, is indicting them on the blood of Jesus. And Jesus actually held them accountable for his death, not Rome. Because Jesus, when he, when he spoke of his death to his disciples, he said, the Son of Man will be betrayed and will be handed into the hands of the Pharisees and the, and, 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 and the religious world. He didn't mention Rome. Who was responsible for Jesus' death? Not Rome. That's why Jerusalem fell. Not Rome. His own brother sold him out. His own people. I'm just telling you how he said it. I didn't say it. That's what he said. Jesus' faith gives us boldness to approach him, gives us bluntness to represent him, gives us access to God's presence, power, favor, and resources, and gives us confidence to rely upon and trust in him so we steward what we have been given access to well. Let's get a visual going. Jesus gives his faith, allows me, makes a way for me to approach him. Boom, I have access. I step into the third heaven. Ding, 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 ding. I'm in third heavens, right? This is just a visual. I'm just trying to, trying to grab, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to do this in the New Jersey language. I'm in the third heavens. I'm like, Jesus, I got to go on a mission trip. I need some help. Jesus is like, all right, man, here's a wad of cash. Bam, Jesus hits me with, you know, a few thousand dollars. And I'm like, thanks, Jesus. And now I have that money. And now I come back down to earth. And now I have reliance upon him and trust in him that he gave me that money. And so now I'm going to do with that money what I said I'm going to do. I'm not going to go buy a new iPad or a Rolex. Right? I'm talking about money because it, it gives you visual to see what faith is talking about. Jesus is not talking about money necessarily. But he's talking about 
boldness to approach him, access to him and everything that belongs to him, and confidence in him that we can steward what we've received of him well. That's what Jesus' faith gives us. Do you know that Jesus believes in you? Jesus, he doesn't believe in you for salvation, right? We believe in him for salvation. But Jesus actually believes in you. Jesus died in faith, believing that his death would create a bunch of people throughout all nations, throughout all time, that would live lives that are worthy of his death and his life. I mean, that's pretty, that's serious faith. 15, uh, 14, um, okay, yes, uh, 14, no, 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 excuse me, 13, wherefore, I desire that you faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory, for this cause, I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, quickly, Paul is saying that my pressure, my tribulation, which is the word pressure, my pressure should be your praise, My pressure should be your praise. In other words, it was their glory that he was suffering on their behalf. Paul did not want them to feel bad for him. Paul did not see himself as a victim of Rome. He was a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ and his suffering was the church at Ephesus' glory. Wow, <laughs> we need leaders like that. We need to become that, and that's, that's like, that's pretty, that's something. Paul is like, oh, he's not like, I need help, I'm so messed up. He's like, yes, my suffering is your glory. Do you hear the strength in that? That is not natural human strength. That is the spirit of God on the inside of a man dominating how a man thinks, feels, and perceives and declares reality from a different perspective. There's one thing that we should notice here that I think the Bible includes for a reason. When Paul prayed, he bended his knees. I'm not telling you have to, to get on your knees like old school style. You know, that's what the old school people do. You go to especially um, churches in the hood. When you go there, people are on their knees before church starts. There's something to that actually that's powerful and Paul, for some reason, wanted us to know that when he prayed, he got on his knees. I guess being in a jail cell wasn't humbling enough. Shows his heart. Now this is now it's going to get good here. Um, for uh, verse uh, fifteen, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Speaking of of the Father and the Son, and basically we're image bearers. We are his creation. Um, 16, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. Wow. The riches of God's glory make provision or make us able to be strengthened, which means to be empowered with power, with dunamis, by the Holy Spirit on the inside. 
It's the Father's glory that supplies it, the Son's sacrifice that gives us access to it, and it's the Holy Spirit's work that does it. So we see that God is in agreement with himself, and they are actively at work in our life. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are actively at work in the life of every believer. That's good news. Now, the riches of God's glory, I'm saying this again on purpose, make provision or make us able to be empowered with power. So God uses, this is interesting, but think about this, God uses power to empower us. I just thought it was interesting, the words, that, how, that, how that played out. Um, okay, 17. We're almost done. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that you may be rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height And to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you might be filled with the fullness of God. Faith, this this sounds like someone like my mom would say if I'm 15. Faith makes our heart Jesus' home. Something like you tell your kids or something. I'm going to be telling my kid that soon. Faith makes our heart Jesus' home. He also says that, Paul says that he wants us to be rooted and grounded in love. The word rooted means to be stable. The word grounded means to settle, right? What does a tree have to do? It has to, the roots have to go down and spread out. They settle and then they're made stable. So rooted is going down, and grounded means they're spreading out. Paul understands that it is the love of God that makes people stable. Now this word love is agape love, it's unconditional, it's forever, it is not human love. There's another human love called phileo, it's a benevolent affection that we get for people over time as we spend with them. This is an eternal and an unconditional love that has the power to make weak humans, what Paul the Apostle would say, rooted and grounded, stable and settled in love. And this is what he's praying. Now... Uh, Paul wants all of the saints to possess the immeasurable love of God. He, he doesn't just want us uh, to, to it, it's kind of like, he doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't want us to have a mental picture of it. He wants us to own it. You know, like this, let me give you an example. You can walk into Apple and you can see a new iPad and it's on one of those things. You know those things? I hate those things. You know, it's like I want to know how heavy it feels. You know, I want to like hold this thing, but you can't because it's not yours. He doesn't want that. He wants us to buy it 
receive it by faith, take it out of the box and own it. Bring it with us. You know, when circumstances arise, we respond from that, right? So it's, it's like this picture of he doesn't want us to just know it in our heads and he doesn't just want us to know it in our hearts. He wants us to possess it, which is like different than just, because you can, you can like know something or you can really feel something, you know, but you may not own it. Yeah. Like right now, I have a 2015 Escalade in my heart, but I don't own it. <laughs> it's driving around here. But it, I'm not, you see what I'm, you get what I'm saying, come on. Which exceeds, no, see, this, this understanding, or this experience rather, it exceeds knowing. It exceeds a mental ascent. The results of this understanding is experience. So he wants us to understand and experience which fills us with the fullness of God. Which what? Causes us to overflow. You, when you're filled, what do you do? Naturally, you overflow. Broken people leak. Healthy people overflow. God, in his graciousness, is making us healthy people so that we don't leak, we overflow. We don't need leaky squeaky. We need, <laughs> we need overflowing cups that get people drenched just by getting around us. That's what we need. Now, this is, so uh, it's, it's, it's 9.15 almost. You know, what are you going to say to me? What's in it for me? Right, the New Jersey. What, what, you know, come on. Hello. Right, it's getting late. Come on, you're done. Wrap it up. Oh. 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 Can you help me? Last one. We're going to talk about what's in it for us. Because Paul is a really smart guy. And not only is he smart, God is smart. And God is, he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. He understands we're humans and we say, well, I want to do this and I want to get that. Right? Do you know that God has given us like eternal, an eternal reward system? Like what we do here on earth will have results forever in heaven. Like God understands that we're weak and that we're not all powerful, and that we're not all knowing, and that we don't have anything. So he understands that we're motivated by what's in it for us. I'm sorry to say that. It doesn't sound very Christian. But he understands that, and he created a reward system for us. Here it comes. (laughs) Bam! Thank you guys. You guys are amazing. All right. Now, unto him, this is it. Who, that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think according to the power that in King James worketh. Worketh, which means it keeps working. It's a second tense of a word. It's a continuum. It keeps on working. So we have this power that is working in us. And here's what this this does. This power is 
active. It is the energy of God. And it is the power of God that is at work within us, which is active. Which means, if I'm sleeping, that is active within me. That's where dreams and revelations can come from. Night dreams, visions, revelations. Where do they come from? The power of God that is at work within me. Can an angel deliver a message? Absolutely. An angel doesn't have to deliver a message because the power of God is at work within you while you're sleeping. So that power is working and that energy is active. So it's like, it's not power that is like just there. It's not like a, you know, like a must, like a bodybuilder that's just standing there like, it's like a bodybuilder that's like lifting like 24-7. Like that power is in motion. It's not, you know, you have kinetic energy and you have, what is the other one? Potential. So potential is what could be, kinetic is what is. Like if we would talk science, this is kinetic energy, but it's not energy, it's the power of God. It's God energy. It's God's ability. It's God's power that is at work within us, and that power has the ability to exceed all of our expectations. So it's not God's power from heaven coming down on me, boom, whoa, exceeding my expectations. It's God's power within me, within you, within us that has the power to exceed all of what we could ask, think, or imagine. Now, I could ask some crazy stuff. And I know you can too. But God's power within us has the ability. Think about this. I mean, just for a second, just dream with me. What would that look like in a city? What would that look like in a nation? What would that look like in a family? What would that look like in a hospital? What would that look like in a nation that is torn with war and with AIDS? We live in a second and better covenant. We have lower expectations. Come on. We need to lift our expectations up. And we need to realize that God wants to exceed those expectations according to the power that is at work within us. And the purpose of this is because Jesus Christ makes the church his body glorious throughout all of human history history, and through eternity. It says throughout ages and forever, which means all of human history, the word aeon or age, throughout all ages and forever. So Jesus has made his church glorious throughout all of human history by the power and the energy that is at work within God's people that has the ability to exceed all of our expectations that makes us glorious throughout all of human history and in eternity because of what he has chosen to give as a free gift of grace to us. That's what's in it for us. He has made us in the midst of our weakness, in the midst of our struggle, in the midst of our fight, glorious forever. Sometimes I don't feel glorious. Sometimes I do. But sometimes I don't. And I know sometimes you don't. But the truth is that he has made us glorious forever. All right, let's pray and we're done. Is that okay?
All right. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that you're so generous that there is things in there for us. <laughs> and I thank you, the more we just say, God, it's about you, you, you turn and say, when you make your business my business, I make my business your business. Father, we thank you that you are for us, God. We thank you that the God who freely gave us his son will freely give us all things. God, everything that we need to do and to be, what you've called us to be and do, has been provided in your son. And Lord, we thank you for the access, for the boldness, and for the confidence that you have given us. We thank you for your power and for your energy that is at work within us. God, we thank you so much that you are greater than what we feel or see. And Lord, I pray that the unshakable truths of your word and of your kingdom would get deep into our soul and really lead us into the future, Lord, with hope and with faith, expecting, God, great things. And we thank you that you have a glorious church that is glorious both now and forever. In spite of our weakness, God, you say, that you've made us glorious, that we are valuable to you. And so, Lord, help us to declare this message of your value and of your power and of your love, God, to others, God. I pray, Father, that you would make us stable and settled in your love, secure and, and, and stable. I pray that every uh, believer, Lord, that you would make us secure and that you would make us stable. In Jesus' name, amen.